Welcome to Flyover Futures New Flight Plans, hosted by our CEO, Tom Cottingham. We are here because the CMO wants better data, the CRO wants a new CRM, finance wants better security, the government wants compliance, employees want to work smarter, not harder, human resources wants more training, the CEO wants better information. The capabilities of technology are growing exponentially and security breaches are a constant concern. How will organizations deal with these issues? Will traditional corporate and IT flight plans change? Will responsibility for technology be increasingly centralized or distributed? What kind of skill sets will we need throughout the organization, including senior leadership? How do we recruit, develop, and retain the talent we need? We will talk about these and other pressing issues in this series of conversations with IT leaders, technology thought leaders, and other experts who are building the future today. We invite you to listen in and to join our community at flyoverfuture.com. Good morning. My name is Tom Cottingham, and I'm one of the founders of Flyover Media Group. Today, we are going to have a conversation with Matthew Bukovic. And um, Matt, I'm going to have you give us your title, because I know it's very specific, but uh, Matt is with uh, Carnegie Mellon and has a super interesting job right now. Um, And your title is... My title, Tom, and thank you for having me. My title is Technical Director, Cyber Risk and Resilience. Okay, and then CERT part of SEI? Yeah, correct. So I'm I'm a member of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. All right. So so we got that right. Um, and because, you know, your job is risk and resilience, I thought we'd kind of frame the conversation around that. Sure. And use your transformation map work that you did um, for the World Economic Forum um, as sort of the outline of how we approach this. So I think the first thing we want to get into is um, analyzing risk and how how you do that from a government point of view and a kind of a national security point of view and then bringing it down to, you know, what could a midsize uh, business in the heartland um do and, and what resources are available to them to help them start to map out how to assess that? Yeah, Tom, it's a great question. So it comes down to mission. So if you're a government agency or you're a, a middle market manufacturer, you have a specific set of some things you're trying to achieve. You have objectives. You have a mission. Right. From, from a kind of fundamental risk perspective, the question is, what can jeopardize that mission? What What can make you less resilient, right? Uh, organizations are going to have disruptive events. Uh, right, yeah. They're, sure. that, right? They're, risk, happening, yeah right. they're happening every day, right? Yeah, well, risk should never, we, we know that we can't get risk to zero. And maybe you wouldn't even want to get risk to zero because that would mean investments that are not proportional with the value of the asset or the, or the service, right? right. So um, I think the key differentiation is if you're a government agency or, uh, or you're the Department of Defense, you're subject to a set of threat actors that may have different motivations than those that are attacking a middle market manufacturing organization. I will caution though, that there is this overlap. There's in the Venn diagram there, there are those who sell to the government. Supply right. chain risk is an example where they're targeted because of their association with those, those, those other entities, right? Well, and what we're finding is if you're doing business with the government, they're going to require you to meet their security protocols. Um, and so a lot of our mid-market companies are dealing with that, right? Yeah. Which is we are a vendor to a 
whatever, a part of the federal government, DOD, or even maybe a, a super large, you know, multinational. Right. And we have to now meet their security protocols. Um, and that's a real challenge for, for a lot of these mid-sized businesses who don't have, you know, staff of a hundred people to deal with these. Yeah. Things. I mean, that, that's the magic, isn't it? How, how do we agree a common baseline that's achievable for all, right? right. You're always going to have those that exceed the baseline. I mean, it's, sure. So this is, we should really view, in my opinion, we should view these, these requirements, these regulatory requirements as a floor and not a ceiling, right? You should be able to scale that then to your own need. Right. Um, it's a tricky one in the sense that you know, I think no one's going to argue that we can afford to not address cybersecurity, no matter what you do as a business, right? right. Um, at the same time, it can't, it can't overwhelm you and, and it can't be economically infeasible, right? So, I mean, that's been one of the, 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 the key challenges. How do we strike that balance? How do we do risk-informed investment in security in a way that demonstrates value, right? This is- Okay, so I love that phrase, right? Risk-informed investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we know is that this investment is going to continue you know, forever. Um, and so then how do you start to prioritize those things? I mean, sure. we've got, you know, thousands of endpoints. And so that's one huge threat, right? And then we've got sort of the crown jewels of our data, whether that's our IP or customer data that we're holding, you know, in our cloud database, whatever, um, that where the business would absolutely fail if we didn't have access to that data, right? Yeah. Um, so, so those are two extremes, right? The, the person who's in the coffee shop with their laptop, who's an employee, and the core data that your business absolutely fundamentally needs to operate. Does that make sense? It, it, it absolutely does, Tom. And I, I think that, you know, this is historically well-traveled uh, territory, right? So yeah, Sun Tzu right. and Von Clausewitz taught us lessons about this before there is cycle, right? So we, we, we need to focus on the critical few. And how do you decide the criticality of something? Well, you have to understand what they do, right? So I would argue all organizations, whether you're you know, Fortune 50 or a startup or you know seven people making things for Etsy and you have a web presence, right? you should start with here are the key things we do, prioritize those things. So right, let's imagine that you are a bank and right. you can say, right, our... Our key services are clearing and settlement. Um, it's lending, right? You make that list. And then once you have that list, you can then enumerate the assets required. And what you're going to find is oftentimes the data, the networks required will overlap multiple functions or multiple right. assets, right? Okay. And, and then you've got to determine your investment yeah. in securing those things. So, so we move from... We've got our critical things that we absolutely have to protect. Your phrase was um, the critical few. The critical few, yeah, that's a phrase we often use, which is, I mean, it's the old adage that if you if you try to defend everything, you're defending nothing, right? I mean, it's we, we have to concentrate our, 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 our finite resources on the things that matter the most. Right, and so now we get to start to build resilience around the critical few. Right. Right. Um, and, and how do we, how, how do you look at the best ways to approach building that kind of resilience? Yeah. Um, well, I, once you've established what the critical few are right. and you've established 
well, no, let me let me back up. There's a step I should I should better explain. Okay. Once you understand the assets and the services, the things that you do, mm-hmm. you then have to make some decisions around how critical uh, those things are in relation to some time scale, right? So how long can I be without the clearing and settlement function of my bank? Okay, that's, that seems like a super important point, right? Yeah, and I think that we tend, in my profession, we tend to gloss over this, right? So when I was in industry, um, I spent a lot of time doing business impact assessments. And I think the value of that can't be overstated, right? That instead of making this sort of you know, notional or, uh, or the codification of, of the kind of collective uh, corporate mythology, you need to think about ways to quantify the risk, right? So if I say clearing and settlement represents X percent of our business and we will lose Y dollars, right, um, at a specific point, you're now calculating the, the recovery time objective for a system, right? So that's right. some tolerable downtime. Right. You can do this for just about, you can just ran it through any, it's sure. not just for banks or manufacturing, right? You can have a pizza shop and do the same calculation. Right. Right? Um, the question then is, well, what are the things that endanger that asset? What are the cyber threats, right? And once you start ticking those off, you can start deciding where to prioritize the investment in defenses and also in the capabilities to recover it. One of the one of the topics or one of the concepts I'd like to convey in this discussion is that for for all of our assets, we have an obligation to to do two things, two basic things, right? We we need to keep them out of harm's way as best possible. We call that cybersecurity, and then we have to find a way to recover them when something disruptive happens. We call that business continuity. Right. So if you look at these two sides of the equation, this is managing conditions and managing consequences. One of the things we have to realize is that no one can fully manage the conditions. There is going to be the zero. You've got to have a plan for the consequences. Absolutely. And that, to me, is the difference between security and resilience, right? That's Uh, a super good point. Yeah, it's really, I think, key to the the understanding and the worldview that that we have here at CERT regarding risk and resilience. Hmm. Okay. So we've got now a plan. We're going to look at our assets. We're going to start to build resiliency around um, the critical few. We're going to have a plan for recovery, assuming we get attacked. Yeah. Right. Um, And then we've got this other group of assets that are called employees. Right. And and that becomes sort of, um, you know, socio-technical problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is behavior. How much should people worry about that? I mean, if I'm looking, you know, I've got my critical stuff more or less firewalled and I have a plan, but I also have, like we, I mentioned earlier, you know, my biggest asset, probably my employees out there all over the world being not really aware of the security protocols. So. Sure, sure, Tom. So I'd offer a couple of thoughts about that. So I would suggest there's four basic asset types. There's technology, there's right. information, there's facilities, and there's people. Okay. And there's a, an obvious interplay, uh, right, for these assets. So information technology reside in facilities, right? People reside in facilities. That could be their home now or the office. Right. But also people, to your point, are containers. They're containers for information. So the, the, the human or the people asset has these huge attributes where it serves as a, as a fragile container for information. Mm-hmm. And it's also capable of doing something uh, malicious to the other assets. So 
Um, I think maybe part of part of the answer to your question is you have to think about the potential for insider threats, insider risk, right? Which are huge. Which are huge, and that can take the and not and not nefarious actors, just huge because we're people. Yeah. So the the human frailty, right? Like this is exactly right, Tom. Right. So which isn't going to change, right? You can train people, and you must train people, but you're always going to have those situations where someone that's well intentioned does something foolish. The right. best example, the most contemporary example in cyber might be, you know, clicking on that that phishing email yep. triggers the payload, right? That I mean, the first billion dollar breach, right? The target breach was was the result of one of their contractors clicking on a phishing email, right? That's how the credentials were stolen. Um, that, right? That I guarantee right. you, <laughs> you cannot protect against that. Right. So again, disruptive, bad stuff's going to happen. It's going to happen in your organization, like all organizations. The, the right. question is, how do we minimize it as best possible? How do we plan to deal with the consequences? Okay. That makes a ton of sense. So so now let's zoom out a little bit. And we're in a world right now where it looks like you've got a lot of state actors from North Korea to you know China and Russia and others. You've got criminals right who also may be associated with some of those state actors yeah. um, and then you just got people right just doing stupid things um or vandals and so let's look at the state actor situation right now you know we're sitting here in america and people are talking about cyber warfare and fourth generation warfare and all these things and and how real is this and, and what do you see out there when you you know, look globally at the, at the cyber threats that are sort of macro. Sure. Um, is cyber war real? I would say it is. I would say that it's a continuum of conflict that's different in some ways than conflict we've seen in the past, right? So, you know, Richard Clark says this in his book, Cyber War, right? Where um, what's the dividing line between preparing the battlefield and being engaged in some aggressive uh, offensive activity, right? It's, it's really blurry. And Jason Healy makes this point in his book, right? A Fierce Domain, which is um, the nature of conflict is changing in cyber, right? Or maybe the better way to put it is traditional notions about conflict are difficult to square with cyber. Yeah, we've changed our weapons. Yeah, and I think as always, right, you know, there's a temptation to kind of fight the last war. So. Oh, yeah. I think phrases like cyber Pearl Harbor are actually not very helpful. No. I think that that if we see a, a wide, a broad based cyber attack from a determined nation state adversary, it'll probably look different. Right. Um, so to answer your question, I think that there's a lot of geopolitical events that are potentially destabilizing it's destabilizing in cyberspace. Right. So the Russian invasion of Ukraine, tensions around Taiwan, right? All of these things, the North Korean, the perpetual North Korean situation, it seems, right? All, right. all, all of these things are stressors in that system. Um, we also, right, as, as, as maybe a thought, unlike the Cold War, where you have the idea of mutual assured destruction, we don't really have that in cyberspace, right? So will, will nations be prone to use their cyber weapons differently than they would other weapons of mass destruction? We don't know, but the theory is there's a lack of deterrence in cyber right now. Right. And I mean, is it part of doctrine now? I would think it would be that if you're going to invade a country or if you just have an enemy that you start shutting down their infrastructure, messing with their grid. I mean, yeah, 
it, we, it, from a civilian standpoint and a non-technical standpoint, it seems like there's fragility all over the place. There is. And I think as an aside, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is interesting in that the assumption was that, you know, if you're Russia, you'll turn off the lights and take down telecommunications. Exactly right. What we're finding is, and I think this is unique to the Russian situation. is they, actually, needed, they needed the infrastructure in Ukraine to make phone calls. Exactly right. So they, yeah, they are. It's also how we knew where all their generals were. <laughs> right. Right. So, but, so you can't, you can't take down the infrastructure you're depending on. Now I would argue with other adversaries that won't be the case. Right. Yeah. Um, so yes, I, I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is maybe unique and different than what I'd expect in other conflicts. But yes, as a matter of doctrine, I think it's safe to assume we'll see as a matter of preparing the battlefield or early stages of, of, of uh, offensive actions, you'll see some cyber component, right? Right. Um, we just aren't seeing that in the conflict that's in the headlines right now. What about just just ongoing cyber harassment, right? So, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that anyone's going to invade the United States, but I can't imagine that if I'm going to invade Taiwan, I also want to mess with the one superpower that might come to their aid, right? Um, so maybe not all out war, but there are certain critical things that we can shut down or... Um, turn off. Sure. So I think there's there's a couple different classes of attack that we can contemplate. There are things designed to disrupt, right? So taking down the power grid, uh, you know, shutting off the water in a city, right? And then there's other types of attacks that are designed to steal something of value. That could be intellectual property. Right. Um, that could be information about individuals that have access to information that you want, right? This is the um, the situation where you're, you're stealing information about people and building kind of link analysis, right? Right. Um, and we've seen a good bit of that, right? So we, we, we know that defense-sensitive IP is often stolen in the U.S. We know that commercial IP is often stolen from the U.S., right? Right. So in a sense, I think that is already unfolding. The question in my mind is, does that change if there is some connection to a kinetic war? Right. right. I think the answer is likely yes, but I don't have evidence to really back that up. Right? Yeah, it just makes common sense. Well, I mean, I would think at Carnegie Mellon, you guys have some fairly serious security challenges. I mean, because you have a lot of really valuable IP going on there. All the research that's being done, not only with um, what SEI is doing, but the robotics. You know, just so I mean, it's you guys got to kind of eat your own dog food to a certain extent, right? I mean. Yeah, universities are also this interesting cybersecurity challenge that uh, being open and collaborative is the default mode, right? So it's it's very different than if we were a for-profit corporation. Yeah, you guys don't lock your doors. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And having people from other places is just part of the way that you operate as a university. So when it comes to controlling access to IP, um, it's a very different situation than you find um in, in the commercial world yeah, or in the military or something, right? So. Right. Um, all right. Finally, I'd like us to um, talk a little bit about the, the people side of this. Sure. And, you know, one of the themes that, that I'm really interested in that's emerged in these conversations we've been having is that the nature of IT leadership is going to change to be much more multidisciplinary than it is right now. 
um, much more collaborative, much more um, proactively communicative. Um, and it, you guys are doing stuff that's really interesting um, in terms of bringing in people from, you know, psychology and from ethics. And can you talk a little bit about what you're doing and then how that transfers to the everyday business world and sure. how you see the workforce evolving in the future? Because I know you're really interested in that. Yeah, Tom, absolutely. So, you know, CMU, we pride ourselves in interdisciplinary problem solving, right? We've for a long time. Which is huge. Uh, it's huge, right? And, and I, it's, it's really great to see the same thinking being applied to cyber. So uh, most cyber practitioners come through the ranks as technologists. That's both good and bad, right? Uh, I have the opportunity to teach executive education uh, for the Heinz College here at Carnegie Mellon, in addition to my, my role at CERN. And one of the things that I like to say to our, our chief information security officer students is that, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, that the skills that the next generation of CISOs needs quite different. Than the I totally agree with that. So, well, ninety percent of those guys, and they're almost all guys from that. You know, they're they're my generation. Um, well, they're older. I'm quite young actually, but um, ninety percent of them came out of coding, right? I mean, these are DIY problem solving guys um, who enjoy solitary work, you know, um, yeah. and that's going to change. Um, yeah. gonna, I, yeah. I mean, I agree with you on that. But business acumen is key. Uh, so for, for years, cyber practitioners said, we need a seat at the table with senior leadership. Okay. Yep. Well, once you get that seat, you've got to speak the same language. And that means, that means frankly, being able to monetize risk in most organizations. So that's it. Bring the conversation full circle. Yep. That's also, think about the changing nature of what you manage as a CISO or a director of information technology. You're spending most of your days managing third parties, not working on electrical engineering problems, right? right. So I would argue someone with a law degree that understands service level agreements and contracts is as valuable as someone that knows how to code in Python, maybe more valuable. Right? Yep. Yep. So that's changing. So that's kind of one side of it. Uh, the other people side of it. Um, I think that we've made good good progress in meeting people where they are when it comes to training, right? So how do you keep the, the, the workforce uh, contemporary in their understanding and understand that cyber is part of their, their, their role? Um, sort of human-centered design, applying those concepts, I think, is helping. Um, on the behavioral side, as you mentioned, right, our work in, in insider threat, insider risk here at, at CERT, um, we have behavioral scientists, criminologists, people that understand the human motivation. So it's always been the combination of you know, people, technology, and process. And it always will be, right? Even if we envision a future where AI makes decisions, well, the AI is built by something. Now, maybe in the far future where you know, quantum computers are uh, driven by AI that builds a new AI, right? It's writing I, itself, right? Exactly. <laughs> we just, I don't even want to go there. Yeah, when Skynet arrives, in, in the near term, right, we're not going to face that. We're going to face is how do we ensure that things are explainable, uh, that we can have a verifiable confidence in systems, and that we can have um, a common understanding, right, among the staff, among people, as to how we should operate these things. It's, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast from a uh, successful entrepreneur, super successful entrepreneur. And his theory was, one of his theories was that 
the defining characteristic of people in the C-suite and, and then entrepreneurs is that they're good storytellers, yeah. right? And you talk about, you know, you mentioned communication and then you mentioned, you know, not focusing on the technology, focusing on the business, either risk or opportunity, right? right. And having then the soft skills to tell the story and be able to be persuasive. It's absolutely right. People think in stories, Tom. Right? That's yeah. uh, they 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 don't think in in terms of, of, of binary code or, or or data lakes, right? Like th this is a, a challenge with I think CISOs and CIOs at times. If, if you've spent your whole career thinking that the answer is I'll bring you the spreadsheet or the specification, and you'll just understand why this is important. Yeah, yeah, right. It doesn't work in the C suite as you and I. It's self evident. Right? Exactly. Right. right. Um, yeah, I think this is going to be a, a really interesting generational change, um, and we're we're really interested in, for instance, you know, getting more women involved in yeah. senior leadership in technology. Well, once you say, I mean, we work with um, several women um, who have come up and are now tech leaders, um, but basically taught themselves, right? Because they realized how important technology was going to be. So they're great communicators, right? And they've got the technical chops to at least know if somebody's, um, you know, not not giving them the full story, let's say. Yeah, um, isn't this, the, sorry, I didn't mean to speak with you, Tom, but it seems no. to me that this is, this is a lesson we should have long, learned long ago. If you think about other parts of the business, right? We, your, your CFO isn't, your most your your most uh, proficient accountant, right? Like we no no right. So right. so this shouldn't be a mystery to us, but we we do we've somehow in, in this domain we've we're kind of late to understanding this. Well, and and yeah, I totally agree. Um, we're having a panel in a couple of weeks with CFOs, right? Talking about scaling technology and and their perspective, right? Um, and what you need to do as a CIO to get the CFO, right? aligned and on your side and then vice versa. Right. So, yeah. it, and honestly, it comes down to building relationships, yeah. right? Like when was the last time you had a cup of coffee, you know, with your CFO, it, most guys, most of them have never done that. Right. Um, so it's, it's really getting down to those basic, you know, human interactions that, and partly, you know, with COVID and everything, we've missed that a lot. Um, yeah, and it, it, I, I do wonder what those assumptions will look like. You mentioned generational change, right? So, you know, um, for a generation, let's say now you're in high school and you've seen this disruption, you've, you've learned from home last year, and you're more comfortable on Zoom or in, in text than you are in a face-to-face -face conversation. Will that color and change? But I'm a big believer that the same motivations are still there, that the people, they think in stories, uh, human connections are important. And why is that? Because trust is important, right? And in information security or, or cybersecurity, we're in the trust business. You, you want to trust that your systems will not be disrupted. Your, your capabilities won't be degraded. So I think although the forms of communication may change over time, the, the central premise will remain valid. Yeah, I talk, that, I agree with that. That, that you're, you're exactly right. Um, so when you guys look at training um, and you talk about meeting people where they are, are there certain themes that you're seeing emerging 
Absolutely. Um, we know that, and we, we're all probably subject to this, right, in our career. We have the seemingly endless videos that, uh, you know, your computer-based training is simply a series of videos and, and a quiz at the end. That, that, that isn't that effective, right? And it's, boy, it's doubly not effective for younger folks that, you know, yeah. more dynamic content. So, um, Tom, if I had to point to one theme, it's gamification. And, and one of our teams here, Cyber Workforce Development and the CERT Division, has done a great work in, in gamification. So how do you make you know, a game a challenge out of this? So um, we find this is especially effective with younger folks. Interesting. And are you, so is somebody at um, CMU developing courseware around this? I think it's, that's a really interesting concept. Yeah, there's a number of folks, and I'd be happy to provide some, some contacts there. But um, yeah, the, the idea is how do, you, how do you go from sort of a static consumer of, of content to folks learning something based on some game or reward incentive, right? So okay. I want to get the high score, not I've got to get an 80 to get my certificate so my boss can check me off the list, right? Like, right. How, do you, how do you make this a little more, uh, a little more meaningful? Also, kind of novel training in the sense that um, more immersive training. So imagine you have a VR headset. I know this sounds a, a bit strange at first, but- No, not to me, but I, yeah, go ahead, because I yeah. think it's really cool. Yeah, imagine you've got this 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 virtual reality headset, and you're you're walking through some simulation of a cyber event rather than you know the traditional tabletop exercise where we're just sort of reading from a script or using PowerPoint. So that's another innovative technology that I see uh, being being employed. I think also just kind of modes of of training. So you know, moving training to your phone, for instance, right, mm -hmm. uh, is, is something that I see as, as a future trend. Huh. Yeah, the gamification stuff is really interesting, and you're right. It, it does play into a lot of our sort of frontal lobe <laughs> um, kinds of behavior. So let's let's talk finally about privacy. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be curious what you think is going to happen in terms of, of individual data. And then, you know, maybe talk a little bit about um, privacy in general and then what people can do to help you know, at least manage their data, if not protect their privacy. Sure. Um, privacy, you know, it's a multifaceted sort of situation here, right? So you've seen this kind of groundswell in concerns about the use of, of personal data, right? And, you know, in the U.S., for instance, we don't currently have a single data breach notification law. We've got this patchwork of state laws, right? Right, yeah. Um, CCPA in California, we're seeing something that's, more specific and what's expected about breach notification and the way that you, you handle this. And it looks like that's going to set the standard in the U.S., right? Yeah, I think so. I think it, yeah, and Massachusetts also has uh, laws that are probably helping to establish what the norm is, right? Okay. Um, if you look to Europe, right, where you have uh, GDPR, the general privacy rules, right? Um, a very specific and, and comprehensive way of looking at data privacy. And, and, you know, in Europe, I mean, they've had this for 30 years, even back in the direct mail days. They had very specific yeah. privacy laws, right? Yeah. I, culturally embedded. Well, yes, I wanted to mention that. So I, I also have an opportunity to teach graduate students here at CMU. And in the, the courses on, on information security governance and policy, and one of the things we talk about is privacy and these sorts of laws. Right. And I've got people from all over the world. It's really interesting to see this geographical divide where... I mean, I guess I'm painting with a broad brush here, but students from the U.S., Canada, 
are really uncomfortable with the government having their data. Students in Europe seem to be, students from Europe rather, are, are more uncomfortable with industry having their data. Right. And then students from authoritarian regimes are like, well, no, the data is not mine in the first place. So really, uh, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Imagine you grow up in one of those regimes and you have access to really cool tech, but the price of admission is the government gets to see everything, right? So um, I don't know where this is going globally. I think in the U.S. you're going to see uh, you're going to see new laws that better protect the the individual, something more akin to GDPR. But that takes political will. I don't know where we are in that cycle, but uh, I think the the uh, there's a growing concern, even among those that don't really pay much attention to this, about what our data is used for and the consent, right. lack of consent. Yeah, it's kind of, I, you know, I, hard to say. I see a movement where eventually people are going to own their data and either protect it or charge for access to it. Um, yeah, I think it's been a bit of a mystery, Tom, that I think that there's this idea that, you know, we're in this post-privacy era, everything's transparent because of social media. I don't think that's true. I think that we're seeing now the long tail of putting things online, right? We're seeing the consequences of your information, right? Yeah. Yes, I'm I'm glad that we didn't have Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff when I was in college. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I mean the way it's coming back to kind of haunt people. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you can say, okay, well, right, it's that's some divine justice that the things you did that were awful are brought to light, but I it's a slippery slope, right? Um, Right. I mean, at some point there needs to be, um, I forget the legal term, but, you know, some limitations on how far back you can go to be prosecuted for certain stuff. Right. The, the Internet never forgets. Right. That's the thing. Right. Or, uh, or forgives. Apparently. Or forgives. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and, uh, and like the, the famous New Yorker cartoon, the Internet now knows if you're a dog. Right. Like that's if you know that famous cartoon where on the Internet, yeah. those are your dog. No, the Internet knows if you're a dog. now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's crazy. Um, this has been super interesting. I think the work you guys are doing is fascinating and it's really interesting to look at how you can do stuff for the Department of Defense that I'm sure is, you know, highly classified and, and you know, where failure is catastrophic and then move that down to what needs to happen in the real world for this. And I, and I think that, you, you, you know, let's, let's identify the critical few, protect those like crazy and have a really good backup plan for the yeah. inevitable um, and then this gamification is training and, and, and I, you know, like the concept of the skill stack, right. Where you're constantly adding, I think that's going to change higher education. It's going to change training. I think it'll change how people look at their opportunities. Right. It's like, Absolutely. I mean, we have people, um, here in Louisville who are going to, um, folks with a high school degree, no associate's degree adding two or three modules to their skill stack in a matter of months, right? And making them employable. Um, and it's really been interesting to watch it. And, and for those people, um, this has transformed their lives, right? And they will always operate that way, right? Like I want to move over here. I'll add to my skill stack, right? In real time and do that. And I mean, you see the same thing happening. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm a native Pittsburgher, right? And, and I work for a university founded by an industrialist. And I watched this progression in Pittsburgh, right? When heavy industry died, 
and people had to reinvent themselves and reskill. Yep. Uh, and I think, you know, you said something really interesting too, which is, I think in tech, we're going to see a better differentiation in the future between the roles that require four-year degrees and the roles that are more akin to working in the trades, right? I, yeah, I mean, we could talk about sort of the history of higher education and, and why college used to exist. But yeah, I, I agree. I don't know if the the traditional looking at, you know, you've got your four years and um, and then your two-year MBA and, and you're done and that's the ticket to admission. I think that's going away for sure. Um, well, Matt, any other final thoughts you've got? Um, I mean, we've touched on a lot of things. Sure. I, I guess one of the one of the concerns I always have is that things I am describing might seem really complicated. The truth is this isn't beyond any organization or anyone, right? That if you start with the basics and focus on the fundamentals, that'll see you through. And I guess the other thing I'd offer is, you know, be smart consumers of technology. Don't believe that the next generation of magic box with blinky lights is going to save you. Right. Right. Um, we need to get out of that mindset. I, I, that's a really great way to end it. Although I'm going to ask one more thing. You seem to be incredibly well read. Um, is there a book you would like to recommend to the audience that you have found fascinating in the last month or you know few months? Sure. So I, uh, I, I like to I try to read kind of on different subjects. Um, and you know I mentioned two cybersecurity books that I think are sort of important works in the field, right? So Richard Clark's book Cyber War and then. I, I'll also put the plug in for Jason Healy's A Fierce Domain, okay. uh, which is a really interesting study. He did this for the Atlantic Council. It's a really interesting study on sort of the early days of Internet and cybersecurity and its progression over time. Right. So mm-hmm. kind of the the highlights um, from the struggle timeline, but also the, the sort of the progression from occupation to profession uh, yeah. is kind of implicit there. So I, I would definitely recommend that. Cool. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. This has been great. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. My pleasure. It was great. Thanks to everyone for listening.